and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, Pastor Elliot reviews who Jesus is as God, very God, that is. Also, we'll see that the Christian's flesh will never neutralize itself. Lastly, we'll look at what it means to be crucified and raised with Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Robert Elliot. What won't work? Colossians is a book that presents the full deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is very God. He is nothing less than God. This is the book of Colossians' main point. And in the key theme verse of the book of Colossians is chapter 2 and verse 9, which says, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so the book of Colossians that we're working our way through Sunday morning by Sunday morning presents Jesus Christ as God. Very God, 100% God. And of course, there are some great spin-off truths to that truth that Jesus is God that we see in the book of Colossians very quickly. He is a king of a kingdom, 113. He is our redemption, 114. He is the image of God, 115. He is the firstborn of creation, 115. He is the creator, 116. He is eternal, 117. He is the sustainer, 117. He is the head of the church, 118. He is the prototype of resurrection, 118. He is preeminent, first in importance, preeminent, 118. He is fully God, 119. He is the reconciler of sinners to holy God, 120 to 22. He is within his believers by the Spirit, 127. He is the believer's completeness, 128. He is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, 2, 2 and 3. He is the believer's good soil for rooting, 2, 7. He is God incarnate, 2.9. He is the highest authority, 2.10. He is the fulfillment of the law, 2.11 to 17. He is our sin payment, 2.13 and 14. He is victor over Satan, 2.15. He is our way to glorification, 2.18 and 19. And last, at least so far in the book, he is the source of all spiritual growth from God. Wow. Jesus Christ is God. He is a big deal. And you can see that in this really quick review that Jesus being fully God blows humanistic philosophy and legalism and mysticism and asceticism right out of the water. We've seen that so far in our time in Colossians. And now we come to chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. The big idea of Colossians 2, 20 to 23 is quite simple. The Christian's flesh will never neutralize his flesh. The Christian's flesh will never be neutralized by the flesh. Put another way, the Christian's flesh will only be neutralized by the Holy Spirit. Your flesh will never be neutralized by your flesh. 
Your flesh and mine will only be neutralized by the indwelling Holy Spirit within each of us. Now let me define the flesh. We have a circle uh, diagram. Guys, if you could show that. We are made in three parts, but one of us. God is one, a triunity, but he is three persons. God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. You are one man or woman, but you have three parts. You have a body, the outer circle, that allows you to interact with your environments. You have a soul or a personality that allows you to interact with other people. Your soul is your thinker, your feeler, and your chooser. That's being part of being made in God's image is you have a body, you have a soul, but you also, the inner bullseye of the diagram is your spirit. It says dead on that diagram because before Christ, Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were physically alive, your body worked, your soul worked, your personality worked, but your spirit at the core of you was dead in sin. Before Christ, all you had to work with was a body and a soul, which together the scriptures call flesh. Before you were saved, you had to live out of your flesh. That's all you had as an option because your spirit was dead. Now that you are saved, you still have the body, you still have the soul, but now your once dead spirit at the core of you has been made alive. Theologically, that is called regeneration. That's becoming a new creation in Christ. So once your spirit was dead before salvation, but now your spirit is wonderfully alive, your spirit is able to respond to God, wants to pray, wants to worship, wants to serve the Savior, wants to read the word of God, etc. And when the spirit of God has control of the Christian, when the spirit of God has control of you, then he is controlling everything. He's controlling your spirit in the center of you, your soul in the next ring out, and your body. And the arrow goes beyond you as, and your body to say that once the spirit of God is in control of you, then the good fruit that he produces in your life is seen and enjoyed and helpful to other people. Your mate, your children, your classmates, everybody, your neighbors. This is the diagram of you if you're a Christian. You have a body to interact with your environment. You have a soul to interact with people. You have a spirit made alive at conversion. And the Holy Spirit wants to control and drive and shape all of it. You still have flesh. And it's a battle, a civil war between your flesh and the Spirit of God as to who will control you constantly, moment to moment, nanosecond to nanosecond. It's a civil war in me and you, and we're going to see some of how this all works in this message. But we are going to see that the flesh will never fight the flesh. The flesh will never give the Holy Spirit the control of you that he deserves. Flesh will never fight flesh, because that is not how it works. Flesh is a chameleon and a controller. Flesh wants to control you and everything about you instead of the Holy Spirit controlling you. And at any given moment, any given decision, any given speech, any given thought is either controlled by the flesh or the Holy Spirit. Never both. Either or. Light switch on, light switch off. 
Now, let me uh, read through verse 20 and stop regularly and make some definitions and explanations. We're in Colossians 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ, let me stop there. There are different kinds of ifs in the Greek language that the New Testament originally was written in. This if is an if that is an if of certainty. This particular if assumes what's after it is true. You could translate this kind of an if as a since. Let's do that. 20. Since you have died with Christ. Wait a minute. He's writing to Colossian Christians back then who were alive to read the letter. In what sense were they dead? They were dead in Christ. They were co-crucified with Christ. When Jesus Christ died because they had been united with him in conversion, spirit baptism, whatever happened to Jesus happened to them. Jesus was crucified. The old each one of them was crucified. If you're saved, the old you has been crucified with Christ. You have to reckon it, believe it, count on it to be so. What happened to Jesus? He was crucified. If you're united with Jesus, the old you has been crucified. What happened after crucifixion for our Savior? He was resurrected to new life. If you're in Christ, you've been resurrected to new life. And the new life looks like an enlivened spirit controlled by the Holy Spirit with the arrow going through soul and body to the world. So since, 20, you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. What are they? The elementary principles of the world is what this book has already talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 to 19 that precede our passage for today. The elementary principles of the world are philosophy, legalism, mysticism, asceticism to review, philosophy that leaves God out in the explanation of what really matters, legalism adding to Christ's rules to make you somehow saved more than if you just believed in Jesus, Mysticism, that there's a secret that only the enlightened, the elite can know. We talked about Buddhism dressed in American clothes. And asceticism, that if we deny our body's basic needs because we believe our bodies are essentially evil, then we will have a salvation that we could work up. Buddhism calls it self-awakening. So it's saying in chapter 2, verse 20, if you have died, since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, you've been crucified to that stuff. You are dead to philosophy, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. You are dead to it. And now, today's personal God story. I have a new special friend of mine and of our church family, a sister in the Lord, uh, Rosanna McCurry, and uh, she is not a Bahamian uh, by birth, are you? No, I am not. Where were you born? Um, I'm actually from Northern Ireland originally, um, so in the UK, but I lived in Liverpool for most of my life. So I moved there when I was seven years old. Wonderful. What brought you to the Bahamas? Um, so I teach at Queen's College. I teach religion. So I just did my training last year. I trained to be a teacher and I wanted to go abroad. So I saw the job advertised and thought I'd have a go. I'd teach abroad. It was a new challenge, a new opportunity. Good. And yeah. how are you liking teaching in the Bahamas? It's good. <laughs> it is. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it's hard work, but teaching anywhere is hard work. Yes. And of course, this is my first teaching job, so I'm, I'm grateful that it's here. Well, I'm enjoying it. 
Excellent. Well, you have a bubbly, a happy personality that I'm sure comes from the Lord Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a bit about your family back home. Yeah, well, so I'm one of five. I have four siblings. My mum's also a religion teacher. Oh. So I'm following in the family tradition. Yes. Um, my dad's a minister, uh-huh. and I've got two brothers and two sisters. Well, that sounds yeah. like a very nice family. Yeah. And we've chatted before. We've had a chance, Beth and I, to get to know you. And we've yeah. chatted a little bit about what God has done in your family, but particularly yeah. in your dad's life. Mm-hmm. And uh, you say that he is now a minister in the UK. Yeah. What kind of a denomination? He's a Baptist minister. But he hasn't always been a minister. No, he hasn't. And in fact, he's not always been a Christian. Yes. So he didn't grow up in a Christian family. And in fact, he had quite a turbulent teenagers yes. and early 20s. Could you mm-hmm. tell us how they were so? Yeah, of course. So um, I already said I'm from Northern Ireland. That's where my family are from. Yes. So for a period of 30 years, you know, from the 60s and 70s and onwards, Northern Ireland suffered from what's known as the Troubles. So 30 years of violence, um, two different sides. One side wanted to remain part of the UK. The other side wanted to become separate and join Ireland. So um, as a result of that, my dad's family was caught up in the violence. Um, When he was 12 years old, his dad was shot dead by the Irish Republican Army. How did that affect your dad? He always says that his family weren't the only family to be affected by violence. So, you know, he always says they don't have the monopoly on violence in Northern Ireland. But his dad was one of the first civilian casualties. Mm. So not the first, but one of the first. Mm -hmm. So because of that, it had quite a big effect. So his dad was... Not really politically minded. He wasn't really involved in what was going on. Neither was his mum. You know, his family were kind of separate from that. They had a normal life, a normal upbringing. Um, But it was just one evening, um, June 1970, his dad was coming home from a club with some friends. Mm -hmm. It was about 11 p.m. And the IRA opened fire on his dad. Um, So he was killed. And I suppose as a result from that, the bitterness and hatred grew in my dad's family. Mm Mm-hmm. So my granny was three months pregnant Mm -hmm. when her husband was shot dead. Wow. My dad's older brother was 18 years old on the day of his dad's funeral. Mm -hmm. Six months to the day of my granddad being killed, my uncle was born. Wow. So I think because of all of these things and because of the situation and everything that happened, the bitterness grew, hatred grew, resentment towards the other side grew, and definitely resentment towards... God grew, I suppose. So my dad always says that God didn't feature all in his life after that. So he may have had a thought of God before all this tragedy. Yeah, and in fact, um, the night his dad was killed, they heard the gunfire. Um, He left his house and they went to a friend's house. So my dad said that he was sitting on the seat and he had his eyes closed and all of the adults thought that he was sleeping. Mm. So in hushed whispers, you know, they were all saying, oh, does he know, does he know what's happened? So my dad ran out of the house and then I think one of his friend's parents saw him and said, your dad's not coming back, he's being killed. Mm. To which my dad said something along the lines of maybe it was God's will. Wow. And then this friend's dad, he shook him and he said, it has nothing to do with God. God does not exist. It's those, and he used an expletive, those people over there Mm -hmm. talking about the other side. Mm -hmm. They are responsible and don't forget that. And my dad said he didn't. 
Yeah. Wow, what a powerful mm-hmm. uh, vignette or moment in your dad's history Yeah, that it would be burned on his memory with all the emotions that were swirling around learning his dad had been killed violently. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened in your dad's life as a young lad after that? He said that since since that day, since he was 12 years old, he always wanted to get revenge. Mm-hmm. And that was his sole purpose in life. Um, so I think, I can't quite remember how old he was. Um, mid-teens, 14 or 15, he joined the Ulster Volunteer Force. Mm. So that was also a terrorist organization. Um, so they were fighting against the IRA. They wanted to remain part of Britain. And he became a terrorist. Amazing. Basically. We throw that word around now in so many contexts. Yeah, we do. But, yeah. you know, here you're saying that actually your dad became a terrorist mm-hmm. and that his father was murdered by another group of terrorists. Yeah, exactly. Wow, so nothing's new under the sun. No, it is not. It's not uh, our, our human condition to repeat sin. So your dad uh, joined the volunteer Ulster force. Yeah to try to fight to remain part of the UK. And then what, how did that uh, look for him as a young man? Well, so I think for him, I mean, he always said that his sole purpose for joining that was to kill as many people as he could. Hmm. So he'll openly say that now that is what he wanted to do. He wanted to give back to the other side what had happened to his family. Mm-hmm. So when he was 16 years old, he was sent on a, on a mission to kill somebody he was told from the IRA on the other side. Um, so him and a friend, they went out and my dad killed this man. Mm. Um, and he said, looking back, it was cold. It was callous. And it turned out that this man actually wasn't a part of the IRA. Whoa. He was a part of the Ulster Volunteer Force, but they wanted to get rid of him. Mm. So they got some of the younger members to do that. Mm. But then I think it was a week later, he was arrested. So his sin was found out. Yeah, it was. It was found out. So he was given a life sentence, in fact. Wow. He was in prison for 10 years, but he was given a life sentence. And he said that when he was given his sentence, he says that he basically laughed in the judge's face. Wow. So he didn't feel any remorse. Um, As far as he was concerned, he was justified in what he did. And he saw himself as a freedom fighter not a terrorist Mm. so as far as he was concerned he was justified in his actions you know i'm sitting here thinking what all of our listeners might be thinking Mm -hmm. is that here we are in the bahama land yeah where there's this vigilante justice people thinking themselves justified to kill someone in cold blood for revenge or whatever other reason and so the story is 40-some years old, but really it's as fresh as yesterday's newspaper here in our country. absolutely. Very relevant for the Bahamas. Yes. I think we all are quite aware that uh, there are senseless killings over revenge and payback and uh, the such. And God has willed in his New Testament that there would be governing authorities, governments, if you will, and that they have a purpose in the mind of God to reward righteousness and to punish unrighteousness and evil, there becomes a great problem when governments don't do that, when they, in the worst case scenario, uh, reward evil and punish what's right. But also if they slip and fail to punish what's evil properly, that's a huge problem. And that's what I think is happening in the Bahamas, that the government is not punishing evil as swiftly and as severely as they have the right 
under God to do and by their own constitution of this land with capital punishment. Some people don't think capital punishment as a place, but it does according to the scriptures in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament concept. In, in Romans 13, verse 1 and following, we read this. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So just very quickly, God says in this passage that the governments that he raises up have a sword. And the sword, the Greek word here for the sword is not a dagger nor a, a fencing length sword. It's a executioner's a beheading kind of a, a sword that unfortunately we see being used by radical Islam. God is saying that a government's supposed to punish evil to the point of capital punishment if necessary and reward what is good. And frankly, when a government, any government, fails to do that responsibility of punishing evil adequately, then people take justice into their own hands and they do wrong. They uh, perpetrate further violence and killing uh, because they are taking revenge. And revenge is not ours to take. Revenge is the Lord's, it says later in the book of Romans. Today's Help for the Hearing segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center. The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com. And now, the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Again, good morning, and thank you for having us with you again this morning. It is indeed a pleasure for us each time we consider it a privilege to be able to visit with you like this. And again, we are talking about suicide and uh, the last time, of course, we talked about when you're talking to a, a suicide person, the things that you should say. Today, we want to end with talking a little about what we should not say. What are the don'ts that we, we don't say to, to a suicide person? Okay, one of them is don't promise confidentiality. Um, don't say this is our secret. Don't have them have you sworn to secrecy or s sign off on some document I won't tell or whatever. Um, you may have to end up breaking that, and it's going to really be sad if the person carry out the plan. So you be upfront with the person and say, no, I'm sorry, I can't hold this as a secret. 
I need to get as many people involved. I'll journey with you. I'll go with you to a session, or I'll call for help for you. But also, don't leave the suicidal person alone either. Right. I think you need to stay by their side until real professional help come. Again, I, I mentioned this uh, earlier, but it is indicated that, you know, we should not argue with the suicidal person. We should avoid saying things like, you have too much to live for. Um, or look on the bright side of life. Or look on the bright side of life. Or try to show them things that may seem very good to you, but to that particular individual, they may not be of any interest to them at all. What are some of the other things that we should not say to them? I think we shouldn't offer to fix their problems either or give advice. What we should try and do is, you know, let them know we're here and we want to seek help for them. And no matter how everyone seems to be against them, I'll stand with you. But trying to, you know, put down someone and say, oh, you need to get over this. The world is a great place. That's not going to help that person who's going through that dark tunnel and probably already have their plans drawn up what they're going to do. We can't overemphasize this. Be a good listener and be there for the person. In other words, you should at least try to make yourself available to them, Mm -hmm. especially uh, if they become overly depressed. I know I've given my home phone to people who are suicidal and say, call me anytime. I'll be there for you. And uh, I think it's a good thing to know that if you are, are very depressed and feeling suicidal, you can call someone who is genuine, someone who has your interests at heart and not just making it look like you're trying to fix somebody. A lot of people, I think, who are not asking for a quick fix, sometimes they want someone who they can talk to and they want to know you care. And you shouldn't promise either that you can fix them or you can offer some solution. Uh, because what's going to happen if they carry out this plan, then you yourself may end up depressed, feeling a failure. Right. When, you know, you should just say, I'll be there for you, and I'll go with you to your therapist, or we can go through this together. And make sure when you, you don't um, promise and you can't deliver, so don't Put yourself out there on the limb and, you, you know, like trying to fix people. I think too many times in our culture, we think that some of the problems is waving a magic wand and everything goes away, but it doesn't happen that way. And then sometimes people say, you know, every time I try to talk to someone, they want to fix me. No one wants to listen. So we want to really urge you, if you're out there and you know a person is struggling whether it's um, suicidal ideation or it's their marriage isn't working or they're homeless or jobless, try and listen. Um, and don't say to them, did you take your pills this morning or when last you saw your therapist? Just, just hear what's on their heart. Be a good listener. Because someday you might be the person who needs someone to, you know, to talk right. to. 
because we can truly say, but for the grace of God, it could be any one of us. We will stop on that note. Again, thank you for having us in your homes again this morning. God bless you. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m. in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a Savior.